Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, a host of the Public Policy Channel, and today we are joined by R. Douglas Arnold. Doug is the author of Fixing Social Security, The Politics of Reform in a Polarized Age, new from Princeton University Press. Doug, welcome. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Well, thank you, Stephen, for having me. Uh, So if you would start us off by telling uh, listeners perhaps a bit about who you are in your previous work uh, and what it is that brought you to this book. Okay, sure. Be happy to. Oh, well, probably the most important thing to know is that I'm a congressional scholar. Uh, I've spent the past 50 years studying Congress. It's a a complicated institution, uh, and it's also a fun institution. It's full of uh, interesting people. Uh, And as a congressional scholar, I I taught for Princeton University uh, for 42 years. I retired three years ago, and so I taught about Congress and apparently American politics more generally, uh, but I've also been uh, writing a lot about Congress. I've, I'm, I'm known for three major books. Uh, one was 1979, Congress and the Bureaucracy, which really explored uh, how legislators go about getting what we often call pork for their district. Uh, and I had a lot of quantitative evidence and was able to test lots of hypotheses about that, do sort of scientific kinds of things. Uh, and then the next book was The Logic of Congressional Action, which came out in 1990. And that's the one that I'm most known for. Uh, that's really a theory about the conditions under which Congress makes different kinds of policies. Sometimes it it uh, emphasizes geographic benefits, pork kinds of things. Sometimes it uh, it services interest groups, and sometimes it steps back and it does broader things like tax reform or passing Social Security. Uh, and so it's a it's a, a theory about when Congress does uh, those various kinds of things. And then the third book was called Congress, the Press, and Political Accountability. Um, And that was really a study about how local newspapers, I'm sure people remember we used to have lots of local newspapers. How when they, they were such a thing, yes. When they did. Uh, how local newspapers covered members of Congress. Uh, and uh, so that's, the, that, that's sort of the congressional side of me. But in the late 1990s, I was drafted to sit on a national panel uh, sponsored by the National Academy of Social Insurance to study privatization of Social Security. Um, and at the time, I knew absolutely nothing about it. And it was actually a commission panel that had been uh, in operation for a few months and filled with economists and demographers and people like that. And they started to realize that the politics seemed awfully complicated. And so they asked me to join the panel, and, and I did. And that uh, uh, was a two-year project, gave rise to a book on privatization of Social Security. Um, and along the way, I also co-edited a book called Framing the Social Security Debate. So that gets to gets to the present. A quarter of a century after that, uh, nothing has happened to Social Security. Uh, Congress last passed a major bill on Social Security in 1983, um, and the financial condition today is not is not good. So uh, I started to wonder, well, what happened? How come nothing nothing did uh, happen in Social Security? And so that's how I ended up writing this book, trying to explain why Congress has done nothing, but also what the options are and politically what they're likely to do going forward. 
perfect. So why don't we, before we turn to, to looking at solutions and then evaluating various kinds of policy solutions against what you think the political climate will per- permit, um, for those who may not be familiar, lay a little of the foundation, if you would. Well, you talk about the, the, the problem uh, that, that Social Security is facing. Can you describe sort of the, the, the way in which the program functions the ways in which it's financed and the, 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 the potential crisis point that we are moving swiftly toward. Sure, sure, be happy to. So there, there are really two important things to know about Social Security, uh, about the way it operates. First of all, it's largely a pay-as-you-go system. There's no huge pot of money that your that workers pay in that sits and grows and waits for them to retire, like an individual retirement account or a 401 or a 403. Uh, but rather, it's what's called a pay-as-you-go program. Uh, there are currently about uh, 65 million beneficiaries collecting Social Security, uh, and there are about 180 million workers paying in. And it's pretty much a a, a quick trip. The workers pay in, matched by their employers, and then the money is quickly uh, distributed to beneficiaries, uh, retirees, survivors, disabled workers, and the like. Um, So that's the first thing. It's it's a pay-as-you-go program. And the second thing is it's self-funded. Most government programs programs just use what's called general taxes to to pay the bills. But Social Security has its own dedicated uh, revenue source, the payroll tax, uh, and it's unable to pay benefits out of of general funds. Uh, That's by law. And so there is a trust fund. It's currently about $3 trillion, uh, which sounds like a lot of money, uh, and it is a lot of money. But by itself, it would only pay Social Security benefits for about three years. In other words, if there are no more taxes, the trust fund would run out in three years. In fact, the trust fund is being used to support a lot of Social Security benefits today, and it will run out in 12 years. So 12 years from now, 2034, uh, the only source of, of revenue for Social Security will be the payroll tax, no more no more trust fund. And at that point, if Congress doesn't do something, uh, the administrators will have to cut everyone's Social Security benefits. By then, it will be 83 million beneficiaries have to cut them by about one-fifth, about 21 percent. Uh, so that's the nature of the funding. Uh, and it turns out that the nature of the funding also points towards the solutions. Uh, you can either gradually reduce benefits, uh, either for current beneficiaries or future beneficiaries. You know, you can do it by, say, raising the retirement age. Uh, Everyone works for a year longer. That does a lot. Uh, Or you can raise the payroll tax. Uh, And there are a variety of different ways you can do that. But that's, that's really what we're talking about, that Congress last touched the revenue formulas and the benefit formulas in 1983. Uh, nearly 40 years ago, and a lot's happened since then. Uh, But the one thing that hasn't happened is Congress hasn't gone back to tinker with those revenue and benefit formulas in a way that would make uh, Social Security solvent once again. Um, And one last thing to know is all of this was known 
in the mid 90s. Uh, in other words, the actuaries uh, uh, discovered in the mid 90s, largely for uh, demographic reasons, uh, people were having uh, fewer children that that we were going to f to face uh, this uh, this solvency problem uh, in the 2020s or the 2030s, and they were correct. Uh, it's simply Congress has chosen to do nothing during that time. So before we we home in on on the present, can you talk a little bit about that the the last moment in which Congress actually addressed Social Security. That's 1983. That folks may remember this as the Greenspan Commission. What what did they understand the problem to be in the program's financing and what did they do about it? Okay. Let me back up just a little bit and say there are actually two solvency crises that happened. One was in 1977 and one was 1983. And why I want to talk about two is they were both, the first one was really caused by sky high inflation, uh, that Congress had just decided to make automatic benefit adjustments for inflation uh, in the early 70s. And it finally took place in 1974, just as we came up with very high inflation. And so quite quickly, uh, so security was running out of money and then there was no trust fund at all. I mean, the trust fund would last, you know, maybe a month or two. Uh, so at that point, they simply raised taxes. They raised both the payroll tax rate and what's called the maximum taxable wage base, which is the amount of, of, uh, of wages and salaries that's taxed. Uh, uh, so they totally insulated beneficiaries from any, any, any harm at all by raising taxes. Um, and then in 1983, uh, inflation continued to be very high. And so it was clear they had to do something else. Again, they were running out of money. Uh, and then uh, they made almost the completely opposite choice. They chose not to raise taxes very much. They did a little bit, but rather to cut benefits. Uh, but they decided not to cut benefits immediately. They did that a little bit. They pared back the uh, cost of living increases. The big thing they did is raise the retirement age. At the time, what's called the full retirement age was 65, and they voted to raise it to 67, but phased in over almost four decades. Uh, so it didn't hurt anybody right away, uh, and, uh, and it allowed people. Uh, I would guess I was then 19, I was 33 years old at the time. I, I think they were telling me I should start saving more for retirement myself <laughs> uh, because retirement wouldn't be quite as generous as it was for, uh, for my parents. Um, and, and so the, 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 the two times the 1977 was raise taxes, protect beneficiaries, and 1983 was to find ways to cut benefits uh, without raising taxes. They raised taxes just a little bit, but mostly, uh, mostly they did benefit cutting. Um, in fact, if you total them up, as I do in the book, uh, they did seven times as much benefit cutting as they, as they did tax raising in 1983. Um, and the two together, the 1977 and 1983, sort of give 
give you a sense of the range of options that Congress had in the 90s when this first came up uh, or in indeed in the last 30 years that they they could uh, follow one of one of those directions or more likely uh, some combination of them. So why don't we, why don't we talk a, a little bit about the the options that are at least theoretically on the table to us to not wind up in a world in which come 2034, we are only distributing 73% of benefits at the current level. Um, so you, you made reference earlier to previous instances of raising the retirement age. Uh, it is a, a common refrain among certain folks that longevity is increasing. Therefore, it only makes sense that we continue to increase the retirement age. Of course, the the more we increase the retirement age, the more we defer people getting benefits, right? And the lower the cost of the problem is. Uh, 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 what the upside and downside of that as part of the approach, in your view? Sure, sure. So let's talk about the retirement age. Um, in 1940 was the very first year that Social Security paid benefits. Uh, not to very many people and not very large benefits, but but that was the very first year. And in 1940, uh, 1940, the uh, average 65-year-old uh, would would live about 13.7 years longer. Okay, uh, by now the average 65-year-old lives about 20 years longer. Uh, so we're uh, uh, so on average a 65-year-old is living about six and a half years older, uh, longer, uh, and yet they've only raised the retirement age by two years from 65 to 67. The consequence of that is that uh, somehow Social Security has to fund uh, retirement for an extra four, four and a half years uh, based on only working for an extra two years from 65 to 67. Um, but it gets worse or it gets better depending. It gets better in the sense that uh, by the end of the century, uh, demographers expect 65-year-olds to, to, to live 24 years uh, 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 after 65, in other words, to 89, 89 and a half. Uh, and, but still, uh, you have uh, people working just the extra two years. Now, just because people are, are uh, living longer doesn't mean you have to have a higher retirement age. Uh, the trade-off is you could have a higher tax rate. You could simply say, oh, well, people would like to uh, still retire at 67 or or earlier, but they, then they take a little uh, hit on their benefits. Uh, but if they're going to have the same retirement age, you, you have to raise taxes. Uh, or you could say uh, uh, that, no, if, if we're going to live a, another decade, uh, we probably have to, to uh, live uh, or work more than two years longer than, say, our parents or our grandparents. So that's the, uh, but the, the, the retirement age gets complicated because, in fact, everybody isn't living longer. Great. Um, that was exactly my question. <laughs> yes. Uh, and particularly people at the bottom of the income distribution are not living longer. Uh, so college professors and, and uh, government workers and most people are living longer. Uh, but about one-fifth of the population, uh, the poorest fifth, is not. And so that suggests that for people who advocate 
raising the retirement age, uh, you need to be sensible to the fact, sensitive to the fact that not everybody is living longer, and therefore you may need to go back and adjust benefits in various ways. Um, uh, for example, for people at the very low income uh, range, uh, you could boost the benefits, let's say, for the t- for the bottom twenty percent, uh, so that if they choose early retirement say 62 or something, uh, they will do better than they would if, if, uh, uh, if you simply raised the retirement age across the board. And, and those folks at, at the, the bottom who, who have, who have least reaped the benefits of increased longevity are also all else equal. The folks who are less likely able to continue working in older age, right? They're not college professors. Yes, They're right. disproportionately likely to be doing manual or physical labor. So we've got sort of biological breakdown factors that come in. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of that is taken care of with disability insurance. Uh, so that takes care of pe- which social security uh, uh, covers too, but that only takes care of people who literally cannot do their jobs as opposed to people who are having difficulty doing their jobs. And I think we have to be sensitive to both. Right. So that feels like a good, a good segue into talking about why not, why not just cut benefits that could solve the problem, right? Uh, certainly it solves the <laughs> solvency problem. Uh, so if we cut benefits by 22%, uh, we would not have to cut benefits by 22% in 2034. So that's uh, right. that, that, that's an equality. We can choose to cut it. In fact, uh, cut now can... instead of cutting later. That's right. So, so the automatic cuts are coming in 2034 if we don't do something. The question usually is, are there ways to make strategic cuts? Uh, and of course, one strategic cut, of course, is is to raise the retirement age. Another strategic cut, would be to cut uh, uh, to reduce slightly the cost of living index. Um, the cost of living index is, um, you know, it, it's established originally by economists uh, to try to figure out how average inflation is changing uh, uh, over time. It was it was uh, not meant to be uh, used to adjust benefit for Social Security, but when in 1972, when Congress decided to do so, that was that was seemed like a good way to do it. Let's just use this. Later, economists seem to think that the so-called CPI, Consumer Price Index, slightly overstates inflation, slightly, because it doesn't take into account the, the, the sort of natural things that people do. If the price of turkey goes up, they switch to chicken or vice versa, and that those kinds of things are natural and uh, we do them all the time. And we don't really think of that as a, 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 a loss of well-being. And so uh, economists have created a different uh, cost of living index called a chain price index, uh, which is just slightly lower than the, than the consumer price index. It turns out if, if one used that, uh, which would, on average, cut benefits by maybe a third of a percent or a half a percent each year, uh, meaning the increase each year, uh, you'd close one-fifth of the long-term deficit. So that's how very sensitive this long-term deficit is to such simple things as the cost of living increase. Uh, I should say there are also people 
uh, who, who seem to think that the cost of living index, the CPI, understates inflation for seniors because seniors spend more on health care uh, than, uh, than, than, uh, than younger people do. Uh, so there's some real dis- dispute uh, as to what the appropriate cost of living index is, uh, but uh, we've just automatically been using the one that was sitting on the table. It was the only one sitting on the table in 1972. Uh, since then, others have, uh, have been developed and it would be possible uh, you could have a serious study as to exactly what the appropriate one is. Uh, but if you use the chain price index, as some economists uh, uh, do, there goes one fifth of the problem right there. Right. Um, but going back to our previous conversation about disparate impact, that's going to affect different retirement populations in different ways. As you point out in the book, the bottom quartile of recipients get 95% of their total retirement income is coming from Social Security. That's that same disproportionately lower income population we were talking about earlier. So that's going to hit them very differently than it might say you or I in retirement. It, it could, but it doesn't have to. Uh, one of the things as I was doing the book is you start to research how do other countries handle this. And Italy uh, I believe it's Italy, has uh, what's called progressive indexing. In other words, it gives uh, quite generous, quote, cost of living uh, adjustments to people uh, in the poorer half of the distribution and less generous ones to people in the upper half. Uh, and uh, so that's a way that you can, uh, and, and, and by the math, that would still save a lot because you're giving very, you're giving quite large adjustments to people in the top half that actually cost more than the adjustments in the bottom half. So you could, you can, uh, you can find ways, uh, if you start to talk about it and start to debate, uh, two things that Congress has yet to do, uh, uh, ways that can, uh, uh both, solve the solvency crisis without necessarily burdening people at the lower end of the income distribution where the needs are acute and the resources are minimal. Um, so let's, that you, you made reference earlier to the, 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 ta- the, the maximum, taxable, maximum taxable wage base. That turns right. out to be a mouthful. Right. Um, uh, for folks who may not know, tell them what that is and again, how adjustments to that might get us towards solutions. Sure. So when they founded Social Security in 1935, uh, the impulse was, let's not do anything for the wealthy. And let me tell you what the wealthy were then. It was $3,000 a year. They were, uh, they were going to tax people making less than $3,000 a year to provide Social Security, and people above that would simply not be part of Social Security. Uh, they were convinced not to do that simply because it's very difficult at the margin to uh, uh, some year somebody might be under 3000 the next year they're over, the next year they're under. So instead, they came back and said, well, let's just make $3,000 the, the limit on which we will pay payroll taxes or we will charge payroll taxes to workers. Um, and $3,000 then uh, we covered about 90% of, uh, of all income. Uh, over time, they kept raising that $3,000 uh, and it's now $147,000. So 
the uh, if you make less than $147,000, you pay 6.2% of your income towards Social Security. If you make more than 147, you only pay 6.2% on the first 147,000. And that number, by the way, goes up with inflation every year. Um, if you simply, oh, and by the way, and benefits are also based on that same same number. So it's not just not just the taxes. If you completely got rid of that, you simply said, if you make $10 million a year in salaries, you should pay 6.2% on all of that. And so should your employer. Uh, if you simply eliminated it, you would eliminate uh, uh, three quarters of the long-term solvency gap. So we can solve three quarters of the problem by, and I'm going to phrase this tendentiously, uh, by doing nothing more than making equitable the tax burden and so that someone earning $25,000 a year is not paying a larger share of their income in Social Security taxes than someone earning $10 million a year. Well, you're you're sounding excited about that, but you haven't told me, told me Stephen. Do you also the politics want to, of it? No. Do you also want that person to get benefits on the basis of that? Because right now, uh, if you make ten million dollars, you're only taxed on the first hundred forty-seven thousand, and you also only get Social Security benefits on the basis of that. Uh, but it's debatable whether you also want to pay Social Security benefits to someone on the basis of, let's say, a rich basketball star made $35 million a year, uh, got taxed in it, and therefore should get colossally large large benefits. So there are other complicated things because there's always been the benefits have been connected to, to the taxes. But yes, you're correct that if you simply raise the maximum tax and wage base uh, uh, to infinity, uh, that, uh, that that would solve three quarters of the problem. Which, uh, of course, then that disrupts the, right, the political logic that goes back to FDR himself, right? That, 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 that uh, if those higher income people feel as if they too are getting something of value from their participation in the program, that theoretically gives it even broader support than it otherwise would have, right? That's that's correct. That's correct. Um, but yes, this is, uh, if you look at polls, and a large part of my book does look at public opinion. If people you look like at, this idea. People like this idea. <laughs> uh, people, people like this idea. Uh, but when I say that it would solve three quarters of the problem today, it would solve three quarters of the problem today if you passed it today. If you wait until 2034 to pass it, it's not going to solve anything like that. Uh, the secret of doing now is is it 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 takes care of the next 12 years. Uh, but if you do what Congress likes to do is to wait to the very last minute, uh, then it doesn't make any difference if you raise it to infinity. You're still going to have to do many other things uh, because it just will not, it will not solve the problem in 2034. So let's turn our attention to, to there's, there's much more to say about the, the policy choices, but let's turn our attention to the politics of it. You, don't, you do not seem particularly hopeful that Congress will act between 2034. Um, Talk, you you know Congress as well, probably as anyone working today. Why are you not hopeful, and and how should we be thinking about 
why they why they are not recognizing this obvious truth that the sooner they act, the less they have to do. Well, the, the first thing is uh, legislators are human beings and human beings are procrastinators. Uh, so so it, it's not a terrible thing to be a procrastinator. Uh, uh, we all are. Um, but you shouldn't, uh, I, I think ordinary individuals are not procrastinators on saving for retirement or how, or buying a house or buying a car, those kinds of things, uh, because they can see it's in their own self-interest. Uh, legislators uh, are often thinking about the next election and the idea of, let's say, raising the retirement age or raising taxes uh, or raising the maximum taxable wage base before the next election sounds like a dangerous thing to do if you're a legislator, uh, because every no matter how you fix Social Security, it's going to impose costs on, on some people, quite a few people, and those people might not be so happy. Um, so, so that's true. But the third thing that, uh, and my book really underscores this, is Democratic and Republican legislators are increasingly polarized on most major issues. That is, Democrats want to do this, Republicans are opposed. Uh, you come up with it, it doesn't make any difference whether it's health care or, uh, or, or climate change. Uh, one of the few things we've seen them unite on lately is, is Ukraine, and that's, and that's very nice to see, and it's also very unusual. Um, so legislators are deeply polarized on Social Security. For a while, Republicans said what they wanted to do was privatize it, um, and then George W. Bush as president in 2005. <laughs> that didn't go too well for him, did well, it? Well, <laughs> he called their bluff. He, he, he didn't know it was a bluff. Uh, he proposed it, and a Republican-controlled House and a Republican-controlled Senate uh, wouldn't touch it. They didn't even have committee I mean, literally hearings. literally didn't have they, a single hearing or vote, correct? They didn't vote at all. They they ran to the hills, just like everybody else. Uh, and so Republicans still talk about privatization, but the last uh, bill introduced to do individual accounts was in 2010, uh, introduced by uh, Paul Ryan. Um, but the other thing is... Republicans, most Republican legislators have signed, signed what's called the Norquist Pledge. They have pledged that they will never raise taxes. They will never vote to raise taxes. And to them, voting to raise taxes is not just income taxes. It's not just the payroll tax rate. It's even raising the maximum taxable wage base, uh, the, the thing that's now $147,000. So if you have Republican legislators that simply won't raise taxes. And Democratic legislators, uh, in 2019, 90% of House Democrats co-sponsored a bill that would have made Social Security solvent for the next 75 years uh, by raising taxes. Uh, well, that's a huge gulf between Democrats sort of sounding like they did, uh, actually acted in 1977, simply raising taxes, and Republicans saying, but we won't. So then you come to, so what do Republicans propose? Well, there have been six uh, what I call comprehensive solvency plans introduced by Republicans uh, 
uh, in the past decade, a little over a decade, since 2010, six of them. How would they, how would those bills do it? They'd all do it, all achieve solvency by shaving back benefits, by reducing cost of living increases, by raising the retirement age, by by, uh, reducing benefits for future beneficiaries and things like that. So, So we have seen six bills come out, but here's the surprise. Maybe it's not a surprise. No, well, only nine other Republican legislators ever co-sponsored those six bills. So you have 200. A total of nine across those six bills. Across six bills, where there are 208, I think, 206 or 208 House members in 2019 that co-sponsored the Democratic bill. So you've got legislators. every Democratic primary candidate had a, a solvency plan of one kind or another in 2020. Is that right? Um, uh, no, I don't think so. I don't More think so. Okay. Uh, but uh, uh, oh, on the presidential side, yes. Yeah, yeah, I meant, yeah, I meant sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Some of them did. Um, so I count a comprehensive solvency plan as one that will uh, solve at least three quarters of the long-term deficit. That's simply my definition. By that definition, um, Warren... Sanders and Buttigieg all had comprehensive solvency plans. Um, Now, President Biden did not. He did have a plan, but it was more a plan for boosting benefits than for solvency. In fact, it it would only solve 26% of the long-term solvency. So it is not, by my definition, a comprehensive solvency plan. It was a plan to extend solvency by a few years, but also to boost benefits. Uh, and um, and so, uh, but to their credit, uh, Warren, Sanders, and Buttigieg all had comprehensive solvency plans that would also have boosted benefits. I mean, they were also politically unrealistic in the sense of, of, of uh, attracting Republican support, but that wasn't their function. Their function during the presidential primary was to say, uh, we would like to address Social Security and we have plans to do it. Uh, and uh, I, I, th- I think what was not then conveyed in the general election, because it was, after all, candidate Biden running, was to say to President Trump, so where's your plan? Uh, if Warren or Buttigieg or Sanders had, had won the nomination, uh, they at least could have challenged President Trump on you don't have a plan to save Social Security and neither do your Republican colleagues. Um, but as it, as it was... Uh, candidate Biden did not have uh, that the ability to say that because he didn't have one either. Thank you. Uh, right. So um, as as we work our way toward concluding here, Doug, you, you point out in the book that that uh, as you just re- referenced, the political parties are, are, are polarized on everything these days now, including Social Security. But by and large, citizens are not. Um, and that there's 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 lots of, of good evidence for support. Uh, of a number of different approaches. So as as people think about what it is that they can do, even if it's selfishly, thinking about their own retiring retirement and not wanting us to reach an even greater crisis point in 2034, what is it that folks who are listening to this can productively do 
to help try to push this forward a little more quickly? Well, I, I suppose I'd have to begin with the obvious thing that they really need to buy this book. Um, <laughs> be <laughs> because I do try to lay out. <laughs> I do. That's a joke, of course. Um, I do try to lay out in the book what the problems are and what public opinion polls suggest that citizens would go for and wouldn't go for and what the trade-offs and all, but also how citizens can, can place pressure on legislators. I mean, one of the most obvious things is to write your legislator or to show up at town hall meetings, whether it's House member or senators, because they all have them, and ask them, so what's their plan to fix Social Security? Um, many Democrats can answer with pride, oh, I've co-sponsored a bill that, uh, uh, that, that would do that. Uh, no Republicans can right now. Uh, and I think that's where citizens can do the most good is to simply urge their, their legislators, Democratic and Republican, to draft a plan or co-sponsor a plan to show what they would do. <clears throat> and that's, uh, and, and, there, and by the way, it would help if journalists covered it too. Uh, I, uh, <clears throat> when I was puzzling about why Republicans had not um, co-sponsored anything on Social Security since 2016, the last person to do so was Representative Johnston from uh, Texas who had uh, sponsored a plan, and he was the ranking Republican on the Social Security uh, subcommittee in the, in the House. And so I looked up the press coverage of the current ranking Republican um, and, uh, and found a, a variety of uh, press accounts that he was talking about all the work that the, within three months, a Social Security bill might be on the President Trump's desk, a solvency bill. Uh, and interestingly, he'd never sponsored one and neither had any other Republicans in, in the past four years. And of course, not surprisingly, none of the citizens at the town hall said anything uh, like, well, why, if we're going to have a plan in three months, uh, what is yeah, it? Where is why it? haven't you sponsored it? <laughs> but neither did any of the local journalists. And quite frankly, neither have any of the national journalists. I can't find that any journalists really are covering inaction on Social Security. Uh, um, they, they, the journalist covered endlessly the battles over the so-called Build Back Better plan that uh, President Biden and, the, and many Democrats were trying to push through the House and the Senate. Um, and of course, never, nothing ever happened. Um, but I see no coverage at all about sort of uh, the Social Security crisis uh, and particularly what legislators are or not or are not doing about it. And so I think both journalists and citizens, uh, there's a lot they could do to basically light a fire on, under legislators uh, to stop uh, 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 stop procrastinating and and to 
put some bills in the hopper. Uh, once you get bills in the hopper, uh, they are quickly analyzed by the nonpartisan actuaries at the Social Security Administration, uh, and they they release publicly all of their reports. The actuaries do about who would benefit, who would pay, uh, and most importantly, how much of the long-term actuarial deficit would uh, uh, would be reduced. And so you can compare and contrast uh, these plans, as in fact I I do in the in the book. Even though uh, no Republicans co-sponsored uh, uh, these um, the the most recent plan from 2016, I nevertheless take it seriously in the book and put down what would Social Security look like. 20 or 30 years from now under the current Democratic plan and under that proposed Republican plan. So you can actually see, you know, how much uh, various people would be collecting in benefits. And you can therefore say, well, which kind of Social Security would I like to live under, my kids, my grandchildren and all. Uh, so those are all things that I sort of lay out in the book and that uh, drawing heavily, by the way, from the uh, detailed analysis from the Social Security Administration actors. This is the New Books Network, and you've been listening to R. Douglas Arnold talk about fixing Social Security, the politics of reform in a polarized age from Princeton University Press. Doug, you Doug, thank you so very much for your time today. Much appreciated. Well, thank you for having me. I, I, I enjoyed talking.